following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. In your life, what are some of the things that you have hoped for? Um, And uh, if you were to keep score, how many of the things that you have hoped for have been fulfilled? Uh, If you're like most people, probably the ratio of hopes and fulfilled hope may not be so good, right? Uh, And uh, as kids, we probably learn early on one of two ways of dealing with hope that doesn't work out. And I remember as a kid, uh, one of my earlier memories of a disappointed hope. Uh, I lived in Colorado in the mountains. It was winter there a lot and lots of snow. And I had this dream as a kid I was going to be a skier. I wanted to ski. Uh, the only problem with that is it does require some equipment. You know, just diving off a mountain face first doesn't really work. You've got to have boards you strap to your feet. So I remember when I was probably about eight or nine years old, uh, my parents asked me, what do you want for Christmas? And I'm thinking they're asking because they're serious about getting me what I want, right? So that's the first, you know, the first step towards hope. I, I get to make a request, right? And I knew what I wanted. I wanted a, a pair of skis because I wanted to learn how to ski. And so I put that request out there. I want some skis. And uh, hope begins to build, right? There's this anticipation of Christmas Day when I'm going to see these shiny skis leaning up against the Christmas tree. And to make matters even worse, uh, between, between whenever they asked me and Christmas Day, there were little glimpses of hope. Uh, and my dad had actually been a skier way back in the day when like, they really did ski on like boards strapped with leather straps on their feet way back. And he kind of dug out some of these old skis. I think he was trying to see if somehow he could make these work for me. And I see these around, you know, I'm thinking, oh, they're thinking about this, right? So the hope is building. I mean, this has seemed like a real deal, you know, and I'm, I'm getting so excited about this. And I just can't wait for Christmas. Christmas Day comes. I rush downstairs. And, uh, you know, skis are hard to hide, you know. If it's a package like this, it's not skis. I mean, it's pretty obvious if it's a pair of skis. They're long. And no skis. No skis. Go through the day. No skis. I did not get skis for Christmas. And I was so disappointed. So disappointed. Uh, thankfully, eventually I did get skis, but not for Christmas. Um, so when, when you don't get your, when your hopes are dashed, when your hopes are disappointed, how do you deal with it? Well, probably most of us have, have dealt with it in one of two ways. When we, when we run against disappointed hope, the first thing we may do is we may, we may decide it's better just not to hope for anything, right? And this way you're never disappointed. And that was kind of the path I took. I decided the disappointment hurts too much, it's too depressing, and so I just won't ever hope for anything. I just have zero expectations, and then I'm never disappointed, right? And uh, it's a great way to go through life because, you know, you never have to be disappointed, because um, you never get excited about much either, and you never hope for anything, right? And, and mostly end up just being kind of detached and stoic and unemotional about life because you just never anticipate anything good happening, right? Uh, the other approach is to, is to keep hoping 
and find every time that that hope is disappointed, you become more bitter and resentful, right? So those are kind of our two options. Go through life being bitter and resentful. Go through life being detached and kind of emotionally disconnected from everything. Great options, right? So which are you this morning? Uh, well, Paul talks in Romans a lot about hope throughout the New Testament, um, that we have a hope that's different than that. And chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul is really talking about our hope. And let me read the first, uh, let, me, let me just read through all 11 verses. We're only going to look at the second half today. But to get the context, we need to back up a little bit. So let's read uh, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Okay, the, the translation would be we, be, we, we exult in the hope of God's glory. So he sets the stage. He says, because of what Christ has done for us, now we have a new hope in the future. And that hope is for ultimately God's glory. Right? But this hope, as we talked about last week, is a lot different than the hope that uh, that we have for the right Christmas present or uh, earthly hope. This is a heavenly hope that has a different kind of quality and certainty. He says, too, we rejoice, we exult when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endur- endurance develops strength of character, and strength of character uh, produces confident hope. So he goes back to that. He comes back to hope again. The trials in our life are designed to give us greater hope in what God wants to do in our future. Uh, for we know, uh, and, and this hope, does, and this hope, okay, here's a key phrase, this hope does not lead to disappointment. Okay, we can be certain and convinced about the hope that God gives us. And as a, as a sign of that, he says, we know God dearly loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Right? So then he moves on in verse 6, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is, who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, we will certain, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. All right, let's pray as we look into God's word. Uh, Father, these are just really some of the most incredible words in all of Scripture and words that are given to give us great hope in our future, uh, to live with a new kind of confidence in, uh, in what you are doing in our life. Lord, I just pray that this morning you would help us understand really the basis of this hope and what your love is really like. Uh, Lord, just speak to us by your Spirit and teach us um, your message, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Um, so what Paul is talking about here is hope, and we looked a little bit at that last week. Uh, and in verses 6 through 11, Paul changes gears a little bit, and he really is going to explain to us the basis of this hope. Um, unlike human hope, we, we never have to fear being disappointed in God's promises. And to help us understand that, he frames it by explaining a little bit about God's love and what God's love produces or accomplishes for us. And that really is the basis of our hope. We can have an unshakable, unmoving hope because of the kind of being God is. Uh, and, and the basis of that really is this radical kind of love that God possesses. Uh, God's love is not like our love. And so to really understand why our hope is in God is different, we need to understand and see how God's love is different than the way we love each other and even the way we love God. And he starts by uh, giving this great famous verse, uh, verses 6 through 8. He says, While we were still weak or helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, And let's unpack that a little bit. Famous verse, for me it's one of the most, um, I mean, I just love this passage. And it talks about what God's love is like, and how God demonstrates his love. We need to unpack it a little bit to, uh, to really get the full impact of what Paul is saying here. Uh, first of all, uh, we need to clearly understand the nature of our relationship with God before we were saved. Now, Paul's been talking about this a lot. We've been talking about this a lot. First four chapters of Romans, we've been talking about how sinful we are. Okay, so today I get to talk to you one more time about how sinful we are. We all love this. You know, we love hearing about how bad we are. That's why we come to church. Please just tell me again what a wretch I am. Well, maybe it's not what we really look forward to, but it, it's, it's important not because we need to beat ourselves up or because God wants to hammer us uh, and make us feel bad, but we can't really understand what God's love is about if we don't understand the nature of our relationship with God before Christ. Uh, and most people greatly undersell the gap between us and God. In our own lives, it's, it, uh, it's, it's a, a flaw of our thinking that we see ourselves as slightly flawed, slightly in a bad state. We don't really understand really the gap that existed between us and God and what God did to overcome that gap. So Paul's going to help us uh, understand that. He's going to unpack some truths for us. Um, and in, in verses 6 through 11, he uses some uh, key phrases to describe what we were. First of all, in verse 6, he says we were weak. Um, he said, uh, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for us. Our weakness is a description of our utter helplessness before God. Okay, so we were spiritually dead, we were in darkness, and there's absolutely nothing we could do about that. Nothing we could do to change our standing or position before God. We were weak. Right? He goes on and he talks in verse 6, he says also that we were un- ungodly, that Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, ungodly can mean a lot of things, and I don't know what it conjures up in your mind, a person who's not very spiritual for sure, but this is really what the word means. It means a person who is destitute 
of reverential awe towards God, one who is condemning God and impious. Okay? To be ungodly means this. It means that we did not worship God and we would not worship God. Right? It means that we would not give God honor, but rather we, in every way we could, dishonored and scorned Him. That's what it means to be ungodly. It just doesn't mean to be that we weren't very religious and never went to church. Okay? That's not what it means. It means we were dead set against God. We refused to give Him any honor, respect, or worship. Right? We weren't just passive, you know, uh, what's, what's the word for somebody who's not an atheist? Next, next level down, there's the atheist and there's the agnostic. Right? We weren't just agnostic. That, well, we just don't know about God and we just don't care. No. The truth is, in our hearts, we were dead set against God. We would not worship Him, it says in Romans chapter 1. We refused to give Him thanks and honor as the Creator God of the universe. Right? So we were ungodly. Third term he uses, he says that in verse 8, he says we were sinners, that Christ died for sinners. Because we all know that. We all make mistakes. And uh, when we hear that word, we tend to think of a person who... You know, who messes up once in a while, right? We're sinners. We, we mess up once in a while. Wow. <laughs> Trumpets from heaven. Wow. Um, I like accentuating those points. We were, um, we were sinners. Well, this, is, this is really what the d- definition of, of a sinner is, uh, according to Thayer's Greek dictionary. It is one who is devoted to sin, right? One who is... Uh, preeminently sinful and especially wicked. Okay? We weren't just making a few mistakes. We were preeminently sinful and especially wicked. Right? That's what our hearts were before Christ. Uh, in other words, we were in complete rebellion against a king who was our sovereign Lord. And in any kingdom, if a, if a subject of the king is in rebellion, it means that he has betrayed the king. He has gone against the king. He is no longer loyal. He has switched sides. He is, uh, through his treason and insurrection, has forsaken his loyalty to his king and country and has changed sides to the side of the enemy. That's what it means to be a sinner. It means we are against God. And we have become, as we'll see, his enemies. Uh, to put it in the in the... In the perspective of a parent-child relationship, we have become a defiant, rebellious child, a prodigal, right, who has run away from home, who wants nothing to do with our parent, nothing to do with our father. We have abandoned him and rejected him and left him behind. Right? We have gone away from him. That's what it means to be a sinner. And finally, in verse 10, he says um, that, that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. We were ultimately... God's enemies. Uh, And this is the hardest, and it kind of is this progression from weak to ungodly to sinners to finally his enemies. Why are we his enemies? Well, sin and rebellion has that effect, right? When you go against your king uh, and you reject his authority, you reject his rule, and you switch sides and give loyalty and allegiance to the king's enemy, guess what? It makes you an enemy. Uh, Thailand, it, it, you know, we don't we don't grasp this very well in, in democratic societies, and in many respects, uh, democracy has kind of ruined us of this concept um, of what it means to defy your king. 
But Thailand has a great picture of this because Thailand has a king and Thailand has laws. And we all have heard of you literally long. We know about the Les Majestie laws, which, which, which means what? You guys know what that means? It means if you ever say anything bad about the king, right, or even hint at something bad about the king, you go to jail, you do not pass go, you do not collect $200, right? And uh, you can go to jail for a very, very long time, okay? So just so, you, just so you know, don't ever write or say anything bad about the king of Thailand. And behind that law is this idea that to speak or to defame the king, to uh, dishonor him, is a, is a form of treason, right? It's a, it's a form of exchanging your loyalty to the king, and you are, by speaking against him, you are betraying that loyalty. And it's, in Thailand, a crime punishable by prison and or death, right? It's serious stuff. Well... Uh, it's interesting how in democratic societies, in fact, one of the outroars against the king in you know, Thailand is, that's not democratic. You know, that's unjust. That's wrong. You should have freedom to blast anybody you want, right? And for those of us who come from democratic worldviews, it's hard for us to fathom this. Because for us, our leaders are, are elected officials who are our servants and slaves. And if they don't do what we want, we have every right and freedom to tell them how lousy they are. Right? That's part of democracy. So it makes it so brilliant, right? And it's why everybody's just dying to be a president or a, you know, a, a elected official so people can tell them how stupid they are right? and what a bad job they do. Uh, so we don't, get, we don't get this idea of a sovereign king who has the right to the loyalty and devotion of his subjects. And to betray that devotion and loyalty and to go against that is to become an enemy of the state. Right? It's to become an enemy of the king. It is to switch sides from his kingdom and to become friend of his enemy. Well, he says that we have become the enemy of God. Because of our sin and rebellion, because of our insurrection, because of our les majestie, we have uh, become on the wrong side of God. And we are no longer his friend, we are his enemy. Uh, in Scripture, the best picture of this is, is, of course, Judas Iscariot. A friend of Jesus walked and lived with Jesus for three years, but on that fateful day, he chose to betray and hand over Jesus to his enemies. Right? So he was no longer then a friend of Jesus. He now becomes an enemy of Christ in alliance with Jesus' hated enemies, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and ultimately the, the people of Rome, and ultimately of us. Right? We all, uh, before Christ, were Judas. We were all those who became God's enemies because we refused to honor him as king. Now, most of us understand that and know that. We understand that's what it meant to be a sin, sinful. That we know that's what it means to be fallen. But here's the rub, and here's the place where the modern church uh, oftentimes has gotten very soft and weak. Right? As God's enemy, what does that create in your relationship with God? Okay, what's the problem with that? So we're the enemies of God, but God's this very gracious and forgiving and loving God who, um, you know, who doesn't have an enemy in the world, right? Well, if you think that, you need to go back and read through the Old Testament and through much of the New Testament, where it's very clear that God uh, responds in a certain way to his enemies, right? And, and this is how he responds. Uh, it says... Uh, that 
in, in verse 10, it says that uh, uh, since we've been made right, we, we've been made right by His blood, God will save us. For since our, our friendship with God was restored by the death of His Son, while we were still enemies, we will be saved from His wrath. Right? We will be saved from His wrath. God's right response to His enemies is this to declare righteous judgment and wrath. Now, talking about sin is not particularly popular. Talking about God's wrath is even less. Uh, You know, if you survey today's Christian books, not too many of them say why God's wrath is going to be poured out on America, why God's wrath is going to be poured out on Europe, right? Watch out for God's coming judgment because God's ticked off, right? That that title doesn't sell, right? Um, Sadly... Uh, we have watered God down to become a God who is passive and who doesn't get too upset about anything and who certainly is not a God of wrath toward his enemies. Uh, And rightly, God is more than that, and we'll get to his love in a minute. But to really understand God's love, you've got to understand it against the backdrop of his wrath. If we take away a God who and make God no longer a God of wrath and judgment, if we make him some kind of weak, passive Santa Claus dude, right? we also weaken what it means for him to be loving and forgiving. So it's important for us to understand what God's wrath is all about. He is a king who is a sovereign ruler over his kingdom, which is the universe. When we sinned against him, when we rebelled against him, we traded sides and we have become his enemy. And this is how God responds to his enemies. And to, to get a picture of this, we just need to go to the Old Testament. Um, in, in Scripture, you might find this surprising, but in Scripture there are over 200 specific references to God's wrath. Right? It speaks of it a lot. There's a lot more indirect references, and the, uh, the prophets are full of descriptions of what God's wrath towards his enemies looks like. Uh, hundreds. I won't go, you know, we, we, we won't go there a lot, but let me just read a few. Okay? Um, to picture what it means for God to be at war with somebody, to be uh, the enemy of God and to be on the wrong side of him. Uh, in Jeremiah twenty three nineteen, it says this, Behold, the storm of the Lord. Okay, God's wrath is like a raging storm. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the later days, you will understand it clearly. And certainly, uh, everything that God prophesied about Israel's destruction came true and their exile. Uh, Further in Ezekiel, he says this in chapter 23. He says uh, to, to the people of Israel, his beloved people, right? Exodus 23:32 to 35 he says you brought all this on yourself by prostituting yourself to other nations defiling yourself with all their idols because you have followed in their in, in your sister's footsteps sister being Samaria i will force you to drink the same cup of terror she drank yes this is what the sovereign lord says you will drink from your sister's cup of terror a cup that is large and deep it is filled to the brim with scorn and derision Drunkenness and anguish will fill you, for your cup is filled to the brim with distress and desolation. Right? 
Not comforting thoughts, right? If you're Israel in these days, you should be terrified, right? Because they were the object of God's wrath. Uh, He says, you will drink it to the bottom. Then you will smash it to pieces and you will beat your breast in anguish by the Lord have spoken. And because you have forgotten me and turned your back on me, that's what sin is, right? Turning our back on God. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. You must bear the consequences of all your lewdness and prostitution. Uh, He goes on uh, later in chapter 23. He says, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Bring an army against them and hand them over to be terrorized and plundered. For their enemies will stone them and kill them with swords. They will butcher their sons and daughters and burn their homes. In this way, I will put an end to lewdness and idolatry in the land, and my judgment will be a warning to others not to follow their wicked example. You will be paid in full for all your prostitution, your worship of idols. Yes, you will suffer the full penalty. Then you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. Um, God is a God of terror to his enemies. And it's real important for us to, to, to grasp this. Uh, God is a God of love. But it's important when it says that God demonstrates his love toward this and that when we were his enemies, Christ died for us. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It means that we were uh, under a dangling sword that was ready and poised to drop on us and destroy us. God's right response to our sin, to his enemies, is destruction, is judgment, is wrath, right? Now, if you're really old like me, you know, we lived in the days when people still preached hellfire and brimstone sermons, right? Sadly, we don't do that anymore because we have made God too mild, meek, and passive. But the truth is, God is a God of wrath toward his enemies. Before Christ, we were his enemy. Uh, and it's not just in the Old Testament, okay? We could say, well, that was God of the Old Testament, you know, he went to counseling and he got better, and then there's the New Testament, right? Um, but that's not true. Uh, he did not go to counseling, and he's not better. He is still God unchanging. His character does not change. The God who could dish out that kind of wrath and judgment in the Old Testament will again judge, dish out that kind of rash, wrath and judgment in a future day. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up God's terrible wrath for yourself. In today's day and age, apart from Christ, in our sin and rebellion as God's enemies, we are storing up wrath. God is not delivering it yet. But he is putting it in a bank account where he is storing up the right and just punishment for every wrong that we have done. For a day of anger, a day of wrath is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is a coming day when he will judge, it says in verse 6, when he will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, but he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. And of course, Revelations is a, is a grand description of the final day of wrath. Uh, confusing as it is, 
um, and as much of it as we will never understand, there are some things that are obvious in the book of Revelation. And one of them is that in the book of Revelations, God is equally as ticked off and angry as he was in the book of Ezekiel. And he is going to pour out that kind of wrath and destruction, not just on Israel, but on the whole world. And it will be bad. It will be horrible. Right? Uh, there are some people who don't like a God who's like that. Right? They don't want a God who, who would be that hostile toward evil. Uh, they think it's not right and fair. And I, and I really believe the reason is because we are so democratic. Because we have lost the sense of the, the sovereign right and rule of a just and good king. Right? Uh, and we need, to, we need to redo our thinking. It's a place where our democratic mindset needs some altering. When we think about God, God is not into democracy. God is not ruling because we voted in there. Right? He's not coming up for re-election. Right? And he will not judge based on popular human opinion. He will judge based on his perfect moral standard. And he will judge in a way that is absolutely just and right and fair. He will not give anyone what they do not deserve. But the scary thing is that what we deserve because of our sin is his full, huge wrath. Uh, Revelation says in Revelation 6, For the great day of wrath has come, and who can stand? Before Christ, we were his enemies. Before Christ, apart from salvation, we, we, we will stand one day before a righteous God who is furious and whose wrath will be poured out in full. Uh, in the Old Testament, it uses words of, being, of his wrath being satisfied, that he will pour it out until all of his anger is used up towards the sin and corruption and injustice that he sees in the world. Right? Um, so that, that is the bad news. And that's the backdrop. And unless we really see ourselves in that light, in that backdrop, we really don't have a clue about God's love. We have no clue about God's love. But verse 8 says this. um, Verses 6 through 8. While we were still weak, while we were in this state as God's enemies in weakness and sin, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus died for those who would not worship God, who refused to give him honor. Um, and he says in verse 7, you know, one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. And this is his argument. He says, look, this is human love. Human love works like this. Uh, there are cases where it would make sense, it would be noble and good to die for a righteous person. Who is a righteous person? Well, a righteous person is a... You know, not, not in God's perspective a perfect person, but somebody who, earthly speaking, is really good. Uh, for example, in, in 1981, some of you may remember, there was an assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. And this crazy guy, uh, Hinckley, I forget his first name, uh, from my hometown of Evergreen, uh, unleashed a, a barrage of bullets on President Reagan. Uh, well, thankfully, he was a very poor aim, uh, and so his first few shots went wide and hit other people. Uh, but he finally zeroed his aim, on, aim in on President Reagan. And just as he was about to pull the trigger, one of the Secret Service agents, Timothy McCarthy, 
covered the president's body, and he took the bullet himself that would have uh, very likely have killed the president. Right? That's an example of somebody giving their life for a righteous person. Thankfully, he didn't die. But he took the bullet. He stepped in place. He, he sacrificed his life for a righteous person. It was the right thing for him to do, for one, because it was his job, but also because the person he was protecting was a person of high standing, of importance. Okay, it was right. So that would be one example. Uh, but probably most of us wouldn't do that unless we were getting paid lots of money as a Secret Service agent and had been, you know, trained to do that. Uh, but, he says, but he says, more likely, uh, a lot of us would die for a good person. Well, who's the good person? Well, the good person is a person with whom you have fondness and affection. They're good because they have been personally good to you. Uh, an example of this would be uh, any parent who would die for their child, right? Uh, no matter how bad our kid is, to every parent, they're good kids, right? They're kids that we would give our life for. Right? We would all do that. We would die for our children because of our love for them. Right? That's a good thing. That makes sense. And there's examples of that. Um, but he says, that's not what God did. God did not die for you because you were right or righteous. He did not die be- for you because you were good, because you were so loving towards him, because you were so cute, <laughs> because you were so adorable. Right? He died for you when you were his enemy. Who does that? Right? Who does that? What human being would give their life for their worst enemy? Right? No one does that. But that's the kind of God he is. He is a God of wrath, but He is also a God of incredible love who dies not for good people or righteous people, but who dies for the people who are the ones in the very crosshairs of his sight, the sights of His wrath. The ones about whom He is about to destroy because He is furious with them. Because His rage and His anger and His justice is incited against them. And He is at war with them. Those are the people that Paul says... God died for us, right? If we don't understand that that perspective, that God didn't just die for us because He was this kindly old judge who could never, you know, didn't have an enemy in the world and, and was just nice to everybody. And that's kind of this picture we get, isn't it? This, the God's like the super nice guy who couldn't hurt a flea. And no matter what we do to Him, He's never insulted, He's never bothered, He's never troubled by it. And he's just this passive, weak God who says, well, yeah, of course, you know, I'm going to be good and give you life. Uh, like some kind of passive Catholic priest, you know, who's kind of helpless, bumbling and fumbling. Right? This is kind of people's vision of God. That is not God. It's this picture of God who has us in the crosshairs of his wrath. But at the right time, he sent his son to die for us. And what's even more amazing about God's radical love is not only did he uh, do this, not only does he love his enemies, but look at what he did to show that love. He didn't just say, out of my great power and grace, you know, I'm going to relent my wrath and I am not going to kill them as they deserve. I'm going to forgive. If that was all it was, that in itself would be incredible. But that's not what he did. He took it one step further. It says in verse 10, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Verse 9, we have now been justified by His blood. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Three verses, and in the Greek, in each verse, the last words are, He died. Three times. We did this, Jesus died. We were His enemies, Jesus died. Uh, We needed reconciliation, Jesus died. That's God's love. God's love was such that He loved His enemies by giving up His own Son as a sacrifice for us. Uh, And it says in Colossians that uh, um, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. It was a team effort. In Christ's death is the Father dying, is the Father sacrificing, is the Father giving. And the Father giving... And the Father loving is the Son dying and bleeding for us. Amazing. It is a radical kind of love because it's a kind of love that no human being uh, would do. It is a supernatural love. It is a kind of love that is beyond, really, our grasp. Because we just don't do that. Honestly, I wouldn't die for a righteous person. <laughs> you know, I might kind of wish I had after the fact. could have done that. Yeah. Uh, I would probably die for my children if I was quick enough. Right? I would not die for my casual friend, much less my enemy. Right? God loved us like that. Right? So what's the point of all that? Well, uh, it, it, ought to, it ought to just uh, strike us with incredible power and force that God loves us like that. Right? But... That's really not the end of his point. What Paul is trying to do is make a bigger point than just that, just the extent of his love. And this is his point. He says uh, in verse 9, verses 9 and 10, he says, look, here's the deal. Since then, we have been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? Right? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? Right? What's he saying? He's saying this, look. Look what God did for you when you were His worst enemy. Look what God did for you. When you were His worst enemy, He loved you and He sent His Son to die for you, to justify you, to change your position, to reconcile you to Himself to make peace between you and Him when you were His worst enemy. Right? If God would do that to His enemy, imagine what God will do to you now that you're His friend. That's what He's saying. Imagine. Okay, you are no longer enemies of God. Through Christ, through His blood, and through His death, you are now friends of God. You've been made His children, and your relationship is one of peace with Him through faith in Christ. Right? Now, if God would do that for his enemies, just imagine what God will do for his friends. Can you imagine what God will do for his friends? Well, first of all, he says, says, you don't have to worry about your salvation. And by salvation, he means one day, every human being will stand before God's final judgment. Uh, It is the day of wrath described in Revelation and other places. We will all stand before him. And he says, you can look forward to that day with absolute hope. Because when you stand before God, you will stand before Him not as an enemy anymore, but as a friend. And when God's doling out His wrath, in, if you put faith in Christ and you stand in, in Christ, you are no longer an enemy, you are a friend. 
And he's going to see you and he's going to say, my, my friend, my dear friend, you're in the wrong line. Okay, this is line for people who are getting judged. You're in the other line. Right? You receive salvation and eternal life. There is no condemnation. There is no judgment. There is nothing against you. You are free and clear. Right? You have nothing to fear. How much more will God do? And it's true not only for our hope for eternal salvation, but it's really true for everyday life. Right? If God would do all of this for you while you were his enemies, what will God do to you now and for you now as his friend? Right? Is there any limit to what God wants to bless you with as his friend? Right? If he has that kind of love for his enemies, imagine the love that he has for his friends. Right? That's who we are. Right? We now stand before God, reconciled and at peace as his friends. Um, that is hope, right? That is hope. And that is the basis of our hope. That we stand now in right relationship with God, at peace with him, through the blood of Christ. And so what do we do with all of that? Well, he finishes with these very simple words. He says, look, therefore... Um, uh, we can now rejoice or we can exult that we have been reconciled with God uh, through Jesus Christ. Um, he says more than that. You know, more than all of that. We, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have received reconciliation. What are we to do with all this? Um, God's work in the past is that He has justified us and made us no longer his enemies. His work in the future is that he will give us complete and full salvation. Complete, eternal life. Salvation. In the, in the meantime, what do we do? Well, mostly what we're supposed to do is be happy about it. Okay? We're supposed to be happy about this good news. We are to reflect often on what God has done for us in Christ. And this should be the thing that shapes and molds our life. We are no longer the enemies of God. We are at peace with him through Christ. Through the blood of Christ, we have new life. We have this incredible hope. It ought to make us happy. So we ought to rejoice in God. We ought to exalt, celebrate in God what we have through Jesus Christ. Um, how often do you remember the cross? How often should we think about what Jesus has done for us to uh, obtain right relationship with God? I'm telling you, we can't remember that enough. Right? Uh, I think I think if you if you can't if you don't come up and, and come before the cross and remember it and celebrate it daily, you know, you're, it's not enough. Uh, and if you start doing it daily, you need to start doing it multiple multiple times a day. Right? It ought to be the chief thought of our life. Uh, as I said, the book of Romans is about the gospel. To be gospel-centered is to live continually in the light of this truth. I was an enemy of God. Without Jesus, I would still be an enemy of God. I would be in serious trouble. But when I was his enemy, God demonstrated his incredible love and that Christ died for me. And he has given me reconciliation. He's given me peace with God so that now I stand before God as his friend. 
if God loved me that much as, as an enemy, what will God do for me as his friend? There ought to be serious rejoicing in that. Serious joy. Let's pray. In his name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.